0: everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Bryn.
1: I'm Nandini, and today we are thrilled to have Joshua White with us. Professor White is a non-resident fellow at Brookings and an associate professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C. His work focuses on political and security issues in the Indian subcontinent. After graduating from Williams College and receiving his doctorate from Johns Hopkins, Professor White spent extensive time in Asia. He worked at the Pentagon and served as a senior advisor and director on South Asian Affairs at the White House National Security Council during the Obama administration.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor White. To get started, we like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point or a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal life. Could you share one or two such moments with us?
2: Sure. Well, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm from the West Coast, from Oregon, so I always love uh, coming back to the West Coast. Uh, You know, when I was in high school, I was pretty sure I wanted to be a computer scientist. Uh, My first job was at the Oregon Climate Service doing data analysis, where I learned to love both weather and weather nerds, um, who were my colleagues. And then I went on to spend a few summers working at Hewlett-Packard, doing Java programming and working with silicon wafer fabrication, Um, and it was fascinating. And when I went to college, I wanted to continue that, so I went to Williams and I studied computer science and math. Uh, And then one summer I decided I really want to do something different. What is really different than Hewlett-Packard? And I landed an internship at the State Department where I worked in the Human Rights Bureau in an, a new little office that worked on international religious freedom issues around the world It had just been created. Uh, and it was fascinating. I got to understand one of the world's most stultifying bureaucracies, but also what the United States is doing around the world to promote freedom of religion and thought. And it opened up a whole new area of professional interest that coincided with a long-standing interest of mine in, in global politics. So um, I decided that I would eventually move in that direction. And uh, I'm still sort of a computer nerd, and I still follow some tech issues. But that was a key pivot point for me making a decision to focus on global politics.
1: Does your math and computer science background um, come into any of the work that you do today?
2: You know, I would say that it uh, it has been helpful in learning to take new perspectives on issues. Um, and that's something that a liberal arts education teaches you, I think uh, anyway. Um, you know I've also had an interest in uh, technology security and cryptography. And so on those occasions where um, you know the United States was engaging with India or other countries on cyber policy or on communication security, I felt like I had, a bit more insight than most into some of the challenges of making those policies work. So there there have been glimmers here and there where it was helpful. But most of all, I think that education was helpful for uh, helping me to take a step back and think of things from different angles and approach problems differently.
0: What got you interested in a career in South Asian affairs?
2: So I was working for a small nonprofit that worked on religious freedom issues. And uh, we had some projects in Central Asia, up in Uzbekistan. And I had a deferral from grad school, and I decided I'll go up to Uzbekistan for a year to uh, teach at a university. Uh, And it was all set. And then there was a big massacre of uh, civilians in 2005 in Uzbekistan by the Uzbek government. And the US-Uzbek relationship fell apart quickly and dramatically. And I was told that I wouldn't be quite so welcome to hang out in Uzbekistan as a young American. So uh, just about that time, uh, I made my first trip to Pakistan, where the nonprofit that I was working with also had a project. And I found it utterly fascinating. I was in Northwest Pakistan. Uh, We were there as guests of the Islamic provincial government that had been elected. And uh, so I traveled around and got to know senior officials and got to know their sons. And at the end of that trip, I still had my deferral from grad school. And I decided, you know, maybe I'll just live here for a year, doing something to be determined. And so I did. And so I spent a year living in northwest Pakistan as the guest of these uh, Islamic political leaders, traveling around the tribal areas, uh, eating lots of mutton, firing lots of AK-47s, and studying informally Islamic politics and the way in which uh, people in that part of the world see their agenda and see uh, you know, see their political environment.
0: So it seems like you've traveled extensively in Asia and spent a lot of time there. I'm curious, with all those different countries where different languages are spoken, how has your proficiency, proficiency or lack thereof in those languages influenced your time there?
2: Yes, yeah, so when I first went to Pakistan, I didn't speak uh, Urdu or Pashto. Um, and when I got there, I started studying Urdu because it's the, the lingua franca in Pakistan. And then later in graduate school, I studied Hindi, uh, and those have been those have been helpful. I mean, so much of the media is is in English, and the elite discourse is in English, but it's tremendously helpful to get beyond the elite disc- discourse. And uh, even though my uh, my has Hindi have gotten my speaking's gotten a little bit rusty, I can still look at newspapers in the vernacular and understand, you know, the ways in which the. The topics and the prioritization are different, or have conversations when I go to these countries with people who otherwise wouldn't uh, wouldn't be able to interact with. So that's been helpful. Uh, And then you know, when you understand the language, you understand cultural nuances much better. And there have been countless meetings that I've been in with um, you know diplomats or officials from these countries. And you know, when they're talking amongst themselves, uh, you know, I sort of have a sense of how they're approaching the meeting and what they're interested in. Um, so I think there are useful insights uh, that, that come from it.
1: Speaking of Pakistan, you were able to serve on a U.S.-sponsored election observer delegation to both Pakistan and Bangladesh. Did you observe any major differences in the way these South Asian countries ran their elections in comparison to how America runs its elections?
2: You know, that's a really great question. Both Pakistan and Bangladesh uh, inherited a number of British traditions, and their elections are still very low-tech. But I think one of the things that we've learned in the United States is that low-tech is not bad. Low-tech has some advantages. Uh, So, you know, in both Pakistan and and Bangladesh, uh, the elections are often held at schoolhouses. And after the vote is done, they lock everybody all the election officials and the party representatives inside the schoolhouse they dump all the ballots on the floor they count them they band them together with with uh with ribbons and then they uh they get old old school wax and they seal all of the bundles of votes and of course if you're locked in a schoolroom with lots of paper and burning wax you know i had some moments where i wonder whether i would get out uh it could all end very badly but um They have a process that works. Now, people have, of course, over the years figured out ways to evade this process um, by changing the vote counts as they go up the chain. And often their vote counts are carried by donkey or by motorcycle up to the next station. But there's also been innovation. And, you know, in many of these countries over the last 10 years, they figured out, well, if you post the vote counts on the door of the school, the sort of precinct vote counts, then it's harder to manipulate the numbers as it goes up the, the chain to the capital. So a lot of things that they have figured out over time. And I think the presence of international observers uh, is useful not because a foreigner watching somebody else's election is going to watch vote fraud happen, although that does take place, but because when there are foreign observers, then local observers who are there who have an interest in the integrity of the election, can talk to foreign observers, get the story out. And it also shapes the behavior of those who are, who are implementing the election procedures. So it was a fascinating experience, and it gave me a lot more insight into good practices and bad practices for, for elections.
0: So your time in the field, um, there's been some pretty major disruptions, like the information revolution and the rise of social media. How has that affected things like observing elections or just other ways that you do your job as a researcher or professor?
2: Uh, social media is really big in South Asia. And I think that it has changed elections. Um, It is harder and harder to rig elections on election day, because people have mobile phones and will take pictures and videos. And so this changes the incentives for those who want to rig an election. And what it does is it makes it more likely they'll try to rig an election before an election by shaping the landscape. So they'll do things like try to use the judiciary to disqualify candidates, or they'll find ways to intimidate candidates into voting, into running as independents so that they can manipulate them after the election. So it shifts the locus of where the manipulation happens in an election, maybe away from election day toward, uh, you know, either earlier before election day or after in, in manipulating coalitional politics. Afterwards. So that's been one lesson. You know, the other thing is that I spend too much time on Twitter, uh, but it's because there are a lot of fascinating people from South Asia, uh, politicians and activists and religious figures who also spend too much time on Twitter uh, to my great benefit and are involved in a real dialogue. And so it is a way to learn. And, you know, I've had the experience of being in meetings in the White House situation room where we're talking about an event in a given country and uh, somebody turns to the CIA analyst and says, you know, do we know if such and such has happened yet? And She says, no, we haven't gotten any information on that. And I say, well, actually, half an hour ago before I came here, I saw it on Twitter that it had happened. You know, uh, And I think this just reflects the fact that the U.S. government still moves relatively slowly in its analysis, only starting to think about how to tap that wide array of information that's in social media. And by following it, you know, you can know things faster than the CIA. And that's, you know, that's important for those of us who are now on the outside looking at developments in these countries.
1: You just briefly talked about a meeting in the situation room. Can you walk us through what one of those looks like?
2: Sure. Uh, well, the Situation Room is actually a complex of multiple rooms. The biggest one is the JFK room that we usually see. But there are several small rooms off to the side, part of that complex. And then there's a watch floor where there are people who are working 24 hours to monitor developments from around the world and keep the president and the president's staff informed. And if something happens in the middle of the night and you remember the White House staff, uh, like I was, you will get a call from the Situation Room telling you to come in or telling you that the president needs a memo in, in an hour and you have to get back and do something. But those those meetings are often very well structured because there's a sort of hierarchical set of meetings that goes all the way up to the National Security Council meetings with the president. And below that, you have deputies meetings. And, um, and so uh, decisions are worked all the way up from the lowest level, all the way up to the highest level. And the meetings usually are Uh, prepared with stacks and stacks of preparatory materials, which are sent to all the participants 48 hours in advance, unless it's a crisis in which they're sent to you an hour in advance. But they set the terms of the conversation, who's participating. And some of the toughest negotiations are about who gets to be in the room, because the uh, White House is extremely strict about who from each agency and department is allowed to come to the meeting. Otherwise, every department would send 20 other people. So you're negotiating who is there. You're negotiating the terms of the conversation. You're negotiating what's going to be discussed. And a lot of it is actually already baked by the time you're in the room because you've had sidebar conversations. But sometimes there are heated discussions about those things. And what you realize is that by the time somebody gets to the top of that decision chain, up to the president, there are no easy decisions. Because if the decision were easy, somebody would have solved it further down the chain. So by the time you get to these higher level meetings, everything is hard. Everything is complicated and everything has trade offs that you wish you didn't have to engage.
0: So, since leaving um, the National Security Council, you were in some of the rooms where decisions were being made when you were working at the White House and before that at the Pentagon. What's it like being back at Brookings and at Johns Hopkins after those experiences?
2: Well, there was certainly a, a rough transition period for me personally. I would argue there there was for the country as well. But for for me personally, making that transition, you know, I would still wake up in the middle of the night and fumble for my BlackBerry. And um, you know, I had to I had to transition from being in a job where I was involved in policy decision making, in which you can make a small decision at a high level and watch it resonate throughout the world over time, to work in which you are making maybe a bigger investment in individuals lives right and So the way in which I had to think about what matters, what's consequential and at what level you know has to shift um, as you go from job to job. So I think that was a that was a big shift and you know I would uh, I would certainly love to so- serve in, in government again um, but it was it was an instructive experience to recognize what sort of things I might do on the outside teaching, writing, um, shaping the public debate that might actually be useful to people on the inside. And I think that's, that was something I uh, was blessed to be able to take away from that experience.
1: So um, you were uh, instrumental in coordinating U.S. government plans to renormalize ties with Sri Lanka after decades of civil war. What were some of the challenges you faced while assessing Sri Lanka's situation and America's relation to it?
2: No, that's a great question. Sri Lanka had gotten uh, some attention from the United States over the last 30 or 40 years, but it had gotten attention because it was embroiled in a a long, long civil war. And after the civil war, the Sri Lankan government that had crushed the Tamil opposition uh, emerged as a victorious political party, and they were not too friendly toward the United States, um, and they were rather authoritarian in their dispensation. Um, so when I was in the White House, we were actually delighted to see a uh, another government come to power in early 2015. Um, and, you know, we, we shared some of their views uh, or we had some views in common. But really what was remarkable is that they at least wanted to make efforts to deal with the wounds of the war, to help, uh, you know, set up a missing persons office that would figure out what happened to people who were disappeared during the war and to find some uh Effort at political reconciliation and at restoring a proper balance of power within the government. So we we welcomed that, but it is difficult to uh, to change quickly, and the U.S. government still had a lot of policies on the books that restricted our interactions with Sri Lanka because of what happened during the war and those sort of the post-war authoritarian environment. And so on the one hand, we really wanted to encourage the Sri Lankan government to move forward with these post-war reconciliation. Um, actions, which were so important, but there was also a lot of pressure to increase our defense engagement with Sri Lanka because uh, the Indian Ocean has become more competitive again. China's Blue Water Navy is reaching into the Indian Ocean. Uh, India is building out its navy. There's a greater competitive environment, and Sri Lanka plays an important role in all of that. So what was most interesting for me was figuring out how to balance um, uh, (coughs) deepening our human rights Agenda and our human rights engagement with Sri Lanka and figuring out a gradual way to deepen our defense engagement and to do so in a way that was beneficial for Sri Lanka and also for us. And there are many interest groups that were, uh, you know, opposed to defense normalization. I I think we did it in a gradual and responsible way. But it was it was fascinating. Uh, And I was on Secretary Kerry's trip in 2015 when he uh, when he went to Sri Lanka. Um and uh you know, I like I like to think we, we move the ball forward. Now the politics is still volatile, they have an election next year, we'll see what happens. But we're not making an investment in a particular party. We're making an investment over a long term, I would hope, in a process, a political process that works.
0: So from the civil war in Sri Lanka to developments in Uzbekistan and Pakistan, you've covered a lot of things that have changed in the region over your career. What do you think has been the biggest change in the geopolitical landscape in Asia since you started studying the region?
2: I would say that um, if we look at Asia broadly, one of the things that is most interesting is how Asia is becoming more integrated. It used to be that South Asia was seen as a world unto itself, and East Asia was a world unto itself. And the U.S. government has historically dealt with the two domains very separately, different bureaucracies and different people and different experts deal with them. But we've seen over the last several years growing linkages between these two. And this is because of China's ambitious efforts with the Belt and Road Initiative to extend its its investment reach across the Eurasian continent. We've seen India's efforts uh, through what it calls its Act East policy to build ties with Japan and Vietnam and other countries in East Asia. And even the political changes in Burma or Myanmar, uh, while they're incomplete, uh, they have resulted in a sort of blurring of the boundary um, that was historically there between uh, East Asia and South Asia. And this, I think, is something new and different. The economic ties are growing between these two regions as India's economic stature rises in Asia. And it's consequential. And, uh, you know, I don't, um, I have had my share of criticisms of the Trump administration, but I do give them credit for the way that they've framed the Indo-Pacific as a wider region, because it speaks to this change that's happening within Asia. And it's a way of looking at Asia in the way that Asians are increasingly seeing Asia as an integrated region in which, Countries on both sides are interacting economically and strategically, and that's where we need to be. Now, the U.S. still hasn't built up the bureaucratic capability to think coherently across Asia in the way that we should and to build the expertise to think across Asia. But I tell students... That, uh, you know, of course, Asia is the future because that's the area I think is most important. But it's great to develop expertise across Asia. You know, think about India and China or think about India and Japan. or Think, think across that boundary because that will make you the sort of versatile policy uh, expert that can deal with the, the Asia that is emerging.
1: The last question we ask all of our guests is what is your personal definition of success and how would you help students define success for themselves?
2: That's a very important question. Um, and I think it's, it's an important question, particularly now where so much of the discourse about the US role in the world is about our interests rather than our values. And um, it's important, in my mind, to define success as uh, actions that are consistent with our, with our values. And there are a lot of ways to do that in the course of a career. But at the end of the day, um, I think that's what matters most. And if you're in the foreign policy domain, you sh- you, know, you can advocate on behalf of your country and do things that make your country more successful and more wealthy. But I think we do have an obligation toward the wider community, toward the wider family. Um, and uh, and you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a religious person, and um, my faith has been a very important grounding for who I am and a very important um, driver for my own reflection. While well, I was in government and now out of, out of government, are my actions, are my government's actions consistent with the values that I hold? And regardless of where people come with their own faith or spirituality, I think people have a, a moral compass and, and that should be the, the real barometer for success.
0: Unfortunately, that is all the time that we have today. Thank you, Professor White, for joining us. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.